Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. We have a really special guest with us today. She is a friend. I've known her for a while. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Her name is Dr. LaTanya Summers. She's an award-winning assistant professor of clinical mental health, counseling at Jacksonville University. There, she brings 24 years of clinical mental health and addictions counseling experience and conducts research on multicultural issues in counseling and supervision. Her work is featured in scholarly journals and at international and national professional conferences. Summers founded the National Annual Black Mental Health Symposium, a conference aimed to equip mental health professionals with culturally specific skills to improve mental wellness in black communities. She serves as the president of the Florida Association for Multicultural Counseling and Development. Dr. Summers has been featured in the O magazine, and she also is now the proud co-author of a textbook about multi-cultural multi, um, and counseling as well. Yes. So, Latanya, Dr. Summers, thank you so much for being part of the Flip Your Lid family. Yes, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, really, it's an honor, and I just thank you for being who you are. I know the people listening are going to be blessed, and as they open their ears and, and hearts to just learn more about you and how you got to your starting place to now having your PhD and being a professor and being a leading advocate and helping people mm-hmm. be able to to understand the black community in therapy. Yes. Yeah. And that they didn't always go together. Correct. Yeah, correct. I think it's uh, just probably uh, like an analogy for my life. I never expected to be here. Kim, I never set out to to, to be who I am now. Mm. I just knew I wanted to be better and greater um, than I was and mm. what I was born, born into, but I never knew what the outcome would be. And certainly this is not the outcome outcome. It's just where I am at this particular point. So I'm so grateful for that. And again, the um, analogy with uh, decreasing stigma against um, that's associated with mental health uh, in Black communities, but then also making sure that all mental health professionals are culturally competent when they have Black and Brown people sit on their couches. Um, I never know that that was a passion or a calling of mine, but it was as I began to develop and mature as a person, it became important to me. Um, and so I'm just grateful to be called to this this line of work, to be honest. I I don't know. I feel so blessed to be able to do this. Well, you're a, you're a blessing to a lot of people, but let's help them understand. So can you tell them some things that happened in your life from, from childhood that flipped your lid, that what you went through, because now we're all seeing how you reconnected to who God says you are. But a yes. whole lot of things happened that flipped your lid and had a lot of defining moments in your life. Yeah, I think um, having suffered so much and so young, I remember by the time that I was, uh, I don't know, 9, 10 or 11, I felt like God owed me a better life. I mean, I'd already suffered childhood homelessness, uh, sleeping in cars, uh, changing elementary school so many times. Um, that folks didn't even know my name. But the one thing, it was very interesting. Every school I went to, the folks would call me smart. That was my name. Uh, that was the only thing they they knew about me. I was never at a school long enough for people to know anything else about me. But for whatever reasons, they would learn that I uh, uh, was a smart girl. So I'd already suffered sexual abuse, foster mm. care. I mean, just almost anything that you could think of, uh, haven't been kidnapped. I mean, almost anything you can think of, I'd already suffered by the time that I was nine. Um, And I remember having a foster care mother that really flipped my lid and changed my life when I was 12. Um, And she had said to me, hey, uh, anyone who suffered um, or endured what you've uh, endured or, or gone through uh, at this point of their lives, um, they end up, you know, being uh, teenage moms, dropping out of school or dead. Um, and I, and um, she says, um, and, and I just remember hearing her and just thinking, that's not going to be me. Like, that's my family, but that's not going to be me. And I made a decision at 12 that I was going to be different. She also 
uh, gave an analogy. She said, but, but you get to determine, uh, you get to make that different, that uh, the weatherman tells us that the weather is going to be so-and-so, it's going to rain or it's going to be sunny. Um, and then oftentimes the weatherman's wrong. Um, but she said, you get to uh, determine uh, that the odds that are stacked against you are wrong. And I just remember that. And that was the beginning of me wanting to be different, wanting to be good, wanting to do good. And so I so appreciated her. It wasn't long. I was actually adopted from her house. Now, every other foster care house was just moving from home to home for whatever reasons. I, it wasn't like I was a bad child. I have no idea. Um, but I switched home. But it was from her home that I was adopted at 12. Like, who? Wow. It's adopted at 12. It was so, I don't Statistically, know. it doesn't happen. It's very, it's very rare. It does not happen. People yeah. want younger kids. I'm, right. And so all of my research is things that I'm connected to, but things that I'm not really close to, right? And foster right. care is one of those things I want to become an advocate for, but it's so close to me that I'm not sure how healed I am from that, that I won't touch it. Eventually I will. I'm not right. yet ready to do that, to, to advocate for children in the foster care system. But um, yeah, it's not heard of to be adopted at 12. Even before 12, I had a relationship with God, though. So interesting. Um, I've always believed in God, although I had lots of evidence to believe that it didn't exist. Um, How can a God so loving uh, uh, Mm -hmm. permit a child to endure so much? Um, So even in spite of that evidence, I knew my life would be different. And every uh, thing that I endured, even through it, I knew it was temporary. And it's so interesting and weird to know at four years old that this isn't going to be my always or seven or nine to know this isn't going to be my always. And I always held on to that. Um, just knowing one day it would be different. I didn't know how, but I knew one day it would be different. And so I'm so glad to be on the other side of that and to be a testament yeah. to people who are still enduring pain to say, you know, God is good. He is amazing. He is strategic. Um, and he is beautiful. Absolutely. But but you're a little girl, horrific trauma, because you threw out yeah. keywords very, very lightly, kidnapped, foster care, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sexual yeah. abuse, right? Yes. And that yeah. even in all that part of your inner voice and inner resiliency was just knowing this is temporary. This is not the final chapter. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so powerful. Can you touch a little bit on the kidnapping? Like, that's not something people always say when I'm talking to him. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And not kidnapped (laughs) by like strangers, kidnapped by my biological mom twice, Uh, literally kidnapped, meaning Mm -hmm. she did not have authority to come get me or to take me. Um, And so I believe the first time she uh, came and got me, I was seven. And the second time I was 17, um, a teenager. Yes. And so interestingly, a uh, short story, the first time she came and got me again, I was seven and it was, um, I remember her coming to my um, foster home and saying that she wanted to take me school shopping. And so uh, the foster mom permitted her to take me to school shopping. You know, I don't know, it's school shopping, of course. Right. right. Uh, and I never came back. I never, wow. ca- and you know, I never came back. Um, and so I was with her for uh, a few years until I called social services and said, <laughs> uh, y'all need to come get me. Wow. Just you the can. power of that. I mean, so much. I mean, a child's, even an adult or, or, or autonomic nervous system, just our overall sense of self can't, can't transition through that of I never yeah. went back to this house. Yeah. Like I never went. Really? Like if someone leaves their job at 40 years old on a Friday and they don't come back on Monday. Yes. Like that's traumatic. You're talking a little girl. Correct. And then you had the somehow internal drive to pick up the phone and call DSS and say, you have to help me. Yeah. Yeah. So way before I became a therapist and having to make, uh, you know, DSS reports, I made my first one at, you know, <laughs> that's amazing. I, I made that's my amazing. first one at nine or 10. And interestingly, Kim, now thinking back, these are things that I don't stop long enough to think about, because if mm. I stop long enough to think about them, there are times I'm like, Latonya, how did you? How'd you make it girl? How, right. did, you know, so I don't stop long enough to think about these things. But thinking back about that phone call, I made an anonymous report. I literally nine or 10 years old and called and said, you know, hey, I got this friend, you know, who's being uh, who's been kidnapped and she's being abused. And so the social worker on the other end is asking me questions like, how do you know? You know, what evidence do you have? And eventually I just said, the child is me. <laughs> I need wow. you to come get Yeah, me good for you. That's so yeah. powerful. At, yes, at so this address, powerful. the child is me. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
And I'm assuming that your mother, I know this is not the highlight of it, but I assume your mother was not punished harshly on some level. because oh, no. she Right, because there was nothing, no yeah. consequence, because she did it again okay. 10 years no later consequence. or so many years later. Yeah. Wow. Yes, no. Um, I guess I was in foster care, so I would have been a ward of the state, but because she is a biological parent, you know, i right. assuming she probably still had some rights. Um, so, yeah, I could have been with her forever. So, yeah. 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 So way before I became an advocate for black mental health and those kinds of things, I was an advocate for myself, not knowing it. Now I can formulate the words and say, oh, man, I've always been an advocate for myself. Right. Well, that is part of the power. I think a lot of us skip that step. I think if we're going to be a really good therapist or really anything like the internal work we do for ourselves, what we're doing for others on some level and like you're you're nine years old and doing that and without that phone call you never make it to the foster mom at age 12 correct who says something so instrumental to you yeah absolutely and i'm thinking how how are you nine years old and know what i remember looking in the phone book for child abuse but like how do you know that at nine you know uh to be able to navigate because you're smart everywhere you went they told you you were smart that's evidence yes 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 yes. smart enough to know how to navigate that phone book to make a phone call right so when you're you're transitioning from being a warrior state and going into um being adopted at some point and then going to college like where tell us a little bit about that bridge that transition so again I was a um, kidnapped again at 17 let me see how did it happen at 17 oh my goodness so at 17 my biological mother was studying cosmetology and she needed to go to Raleigh to take the cosmetology the state exam and I remember her and I was adopted by this time I remember her coming to the house and saying, you know, hey, she needs to go take this license and she would love to take a road trip with me. Now, at at um, 17, I should have ding, ding, ding. <laughs> We've right. been here before, but it didn't right. register. Uh, and I said, you know, my uh, adoptive parents were like, well, do you want to go? And I'm thinking loyalty to mother, you know, to yes. that biological yes. parent will always be there. I did not want to go. But I said, yes, you know, maybe to help her pass her exam. We uh, we did get to Raleigh, but we had a car accident uh, that kept her from keep, from doing the exam, and she just never returned me home. So uh, I was hospitalized. I was more injured in the accident than she was. I was hospitalized. Uh, she changed my name to Jane Doe, so my adoptive parents couldn't come to the hospital to you know find out about me or anything. And uh, I stayed with her through high school. Uh, through the through the rest of my senior year, and so that time it was applying for colleges. I didn't. I never knew it was not even my intention to go to college, to be honest. Um, right. But that was my escape was yeah. to apply to colleges yeah. and to get into colleges. And I chose Appalachian State because it was in the mountains, and I knew she was not coming to the mountains. Now, isn't that crazy? That I is don't crazy. stop long enough to think about these things. So I'm right. just thinking about this now. I chose Appalachian because I knew she wasn't coming to the freaking mountains. Wow. Wow, that is amazing. And, and so that's part of the motivation to get there. You get away from your mom. Yes. You get to school. And again, you're not the... Isn't true for everyone, but most people don't walk in as a foster child, as adopted, kidnapped. Yeah. And it's a hard transition anyway at age 18, but you're you're walking in very different background. Yeah. And now possibly living with people in a dorm, figuring out how to get to your class. Really, what did you tap into internally to to even be able to to walk in there and and walk around as if everything's okay? I remember um, always being self-sufficient. I worked at McDonald's and I had purchased this book, like what you need for your first year of college. Some of that crap I probably didn't even need, but because the book said it, I mean, I checklist clothes hangers, iron, and I purchased every single thing that I needed for camp, uh, college, paid my own housing application. I mean, I did it all myself. So um, getting to college, I thought I was fine until I saw Oprah Winfrey episode on childhood abuse. I totally broke down. That was my introduction to therapy. I did go to the student counseling center, but it was so overwhelming. I had a white therapist and she was talking to inner child work and that just did me in. I never went back. Yeah, I changed my major um, because I didn't do well on a communications test, but I changed my major to psychology. It was at that point that I thought I need to heal but I'm not doing it through a therapist. So I'm going to learn how to heal myself through studying psychology. That's how I ended up in the field. 
wow. not to become a therapist. I never even thought I would do this work. I went to heal. Yeah, yeah. And really, a lot of us do that. We don't be, we don't have a consciousness of it. And, you know, I, I'm sure you found your friends that therapists <laughs> that they are, a lot of people get into this field because they couldn't control their families or understand their families, so they try to control other people. And yes. they don't generally do great in this field. But most of us have to heal in order to do this work. Otherwise, yeah. we make someone else's stuff about us. Oh, yes. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. 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 I, didn't, I didn't want to do this work. I wanted to be a TV journalist. That's what I went to school yeah. to do. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. I went to uh, psychology and I didn't love psychology, the research. And it was just animalistic, but uh, to me. Right. Sure. Um, but I got recruited for to the uh, counseling program. They wanted to diversify. And, and this is the mid 90s. Um, and I didn't had never heard of a master's degree. I didn't even know what that was, but I thought, OK. And, uh, you know, passed the GRE and got into counseling and, and fell in love with it. It was so humanistic, so warm. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. so who I felt like I was and that I could do this. And then uh, learned that I was good at it, that I'd always been empathic, a good listener. Um, you know, so, you know, here I am. I'm so grateful for how God weaved, right. you know, my life together. Right. Just how he knitted that together. Yeah. And, and so well. And part of how... I met you because I met you before you got your PhD and you already had a thriving private practice. You were CEO of a really big practice. And I love you talk a little bit about that. But you and I met through ICU Talks and Mental Health Ministry. And you walked up to me and we just started talking. And and you talked to me about being at 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 the Black Symposium, if I remember correctly, conference that you started. And you went to check on the, the service the service group, the people who were helping with catering, et cetera. And your mom was one of the caterers. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, my goodness. Yep, it was the uh, very first symposium that I'd done. And just being who I am, honoring, you know, my speakers, honoring the people who paid money to be there. And I don't even really remember I don't even remember, but I just walked into the room where the caterers were. I wanted to thank them in advance for their service because they were going to be serving us lunch. And I walk into this room and I see these people around the table. But as I'm serving to thank them, my mother's there. And I'm like, here I am, the host of this conference. I've got to pull it together. But it's years of stuff that floods, that overwhelms me in one moment. Right. Yes. Um I, it was just so surreal. I hadn't seen her for years. <laughs> uh, and then here I, I see her. Uh, she was cordial. Of course, I was cordial. I was really glad to see her. Um, and she introduced me to her folks as, you know, her daughter. But I'm falling apart. And I literally have to go back out here, take the yeah. stand and speak to my folks, you know, to right. you know to speak to my folks. Um, and my adoptive family is there because I'm giving away a scholarship in the honor of my um, uh, grandmother. So I've invited my adoptive folks to be there. And I thought, this is not going to go well. My biological mom is here and my adoptive folks are here. And how do I handle that? But God gave me the words and everything that I needed for everyone to be okay in one place. Um, And because my biological mother is, is mentally unstable, I thought, She's gonna turn this place out. Like this is gonna <laughs> turn this, this place is gonna out. be a mess. <laughs> this is gonna be the first and the last black right. symposium. Right, right. And she's gonna make it about her, right? She oh, done oh. something to make it about her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I learned to make it about her. And Kim, that's exactly yeah. what I did. It's I brilliant. called attention to her as she's yeah. serving the audience. Mm-hmm. And I say, I want to um acknowledge my mother who is here serving. And honey, because her daughter is on the stage and my pictures are up it was kudos for her do you know what I'm saying yes absolutely absolutely yeah it was kudos for her and so I thought wow God thank you for helping me to make it about her right because uh she wouldn't show out (laughs) right well that's that's part of resiliency why it's so important and I'm not talking about foster care I'm talking about normal life (laughs) and that that children be taught how to get through something difficult yeah, that's the resiliency that's born, and you have you're just have an abundance of it, so that you know how to read a room in a crowd and still honor oh, yeah. yourself and not be dishonest. Yeah. But you knew how to meet your mom where she was. She couldn't meet you where you are. But through that, mm-hmm. you have uh, done an amazing job of being able to meet people where they are without sacrificing you. Mm-hmm. And you don't get there by things going well. Like you, no. people have to be able to walk through their tragedy and their trauma to get there. 
Yes. Yeah. I know there's so, you know, uh, just trauma and all that. There's so many deficits, so many yes. things that takes away from you, but we don't often hear the other side of what it adds and what it gives. Yes. I'm one of the most discerning, perceptive people. And I know people who, uh, you know, adult uh, survivors of childhood are some of the most discerning perceptive, can read a room just by walking in, you know, yeah. know who's good or bad or right. who you need to stay away from just by showing up. Right. Um, and it's amazing, again, some of the positives that come from having endured, um, you know, chaotic childhoods, traumatic childhoods. Right. Absolutely. And being able to conquer that. E- even with your private practice, because you, you finished your master's, could not find a job. Yeah. Right. Started your own yeah. private practice because it's who you are. That's yeah. your resiliency. And you've shared a story with me in the past about how you've really taught people through your trauma about like having scripture in the room, how to meet a patient or client where they are. Can you talk into that a little bit? Because you do that so well. Yeah, I did um, have jobs um, coming out of the master's program. I'd worked inpatient, outpatient, set up treatment centers for um, addic- uh, children, uh, youth and adults who struggle with addictions. So I'd had a lucrative career. Um, I don't know. Oh, I know what it is. I became a novelist. I published my first Christian fiction novel in in 2005. And so I thought I'd hit it. I was like, I'm going to be rich and famous. So I quit my job. That's how it started. I quit my job thinking the Lord has is paying me back for that chaotic childhood. Right, right. My job, Kim, and didn't realize you could be famous without being rich. So right. I'm and writing a book is one of the worst ways to make money. One of the oh hardest ways to make money. Amen. I want you to told me. <laughs> I had uh, one of the biggest publishing companies in, in New York. One of books of New York published this book. So I thought I was going to be rich and famous. I'm traveling the country because they got a publicist. And um, I don't know, <laughs> I was a starving artist in the yes. realest sense. Yes. And so it became clear to me that I needed a job and could not get a job. Mm-hmm. And so um, I uh, had made a pact with a friend that I'd forgotten about that um, if, if we ever started a private practice, we would do it together. I don't know if you know Sonia Richardson, but during this time I'm struggling, yes. Sonia comes to me and says, let's start the practice. I'm like, I'm broke. I have no money. There's no right. way I can do this. And she said, oh, meet me Friday at the at this place I'm looking at. I meet her Friday and she's got the leasing manager there. And she tells him, we're going to sign the lease. Kim, I literally have no money. I'm struggling trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how to feed my three kids. Mm. On the Friday that we were to sign the lease at three o'clock, I'm not lying when I say a DHL yellow delivery truck pulls up at my house at one o'clock with an advance check. It was enough to sign the lease on that private practice at three freaking o'clock. And that's how I started Life Skills. That is so beautiful. God's hand all over that. And you having the faith just to, let's just do this. I'm going to show up for this meeting. Like you just keep doing it, right? That's the, that's the faith walk. You just keep doing it. You just show up. But um, I, I, I would, I did not know God was going to show up with an advance check. I mean, that was just remarkable remarkable and amazing, but it's just so evident of how God has always, you know, people are always like, Latanya, you're so amazing. You're so this. I'm like, no, really, God makes me look good. It really is the Lord. I cannot take credit for the moves I make and the things I've done. He, I literally show up and he does these things. Right, right. That's just it. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. But there's certain things you teach from the time you have with the Lord and, and your walk with him. And, and you you share with me, and I love you talk about, like when you had one of your yes. um subordinates, colleagues, how you want to put that employee and her having scripture in the office. I think this is an important thing for our audience of therapists to hear. Yeah. Thank you so much for reminding me of that piece that you did ask for. Um, Many of the the therapists who who worked for me and we got up to 22 when I closed it and I was just blessed to have 22 people who would want to work with me and for me. Um, they were all believers. It's amazing how that worked out. They were like me. They had. A, I felt like we, I don't know, I ran it like a family and a ministry with a business mind. But mm-hmm. one, of, one of my um, um, uh, staff persons had scripture up in her uh, office um, and she couldn't wait to show it to me. And it was beautifully <laughs> inscripted. 
Uh, and uh, I was, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, that's amazing. And it was from Matthews. I'm like, that's amazing. And it's great, but I need you to take it down. And she yeah. cannot understand why as a Christian woman running this uh, practice that I, that I wouldn't want it to be there. But I said, hey, I want to be able to minister to everyone. And there are people who come in here that know nothing about scripture. I need mm. you to be the scripture mm. uh, is what mm. I told her. I, I need you that. to be, you I need might you be to be the scripture. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. You might be the only Bible people read. Take that right. down yeah. um, because I don't want anyone to walk in this office and feel like they don't belong because that's not how they believe. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I just think yeah. that's important. Not by no means am I saying, or Latanya saying that don't have scripture in your office if you're a <laughs> oh, psychotherapist. Yes, yes, yes. That's not the message. It's just a beautiful message of remembering the people that we're really doing this for. Yeah. Right. That we're in the, and to be the scripture instead of having to display the scripture. Correct. I love that. I love that. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I mean, if I got to tell you that I'm a Christian and I've got to have all the evidence that I'm a Christian, I may not be as God-like or Christ-like as I think I am. I think I am. Yeah, that's good. And that's just my perception. I learned in my uh, employees, all of us, we learned how to minister without even saying God to Jesus, yeah. you know? And when yeah. I was trained as an addictions counselor, one of my professors said, Latonia, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Your job is to make them thirsty. And yeah. uh, that's the way yeah. in which I raised my, my folks. We don't need to say God or Jesus. We make them thirsty for him by the way in which we carry ourselves to speak, right. our love, our care. They're rolling out the red carpet when they come. Uh, we make them thirsty for what we have. And it worked. Yeah, that's so good. And when you speak a little bit about, because it is different in the Black community, particularly the Black church, about seeking help therapeutically. Oh, yeah. There's definitely messes in the church that you lose your position in the church if you are struggling with anxiety, depression, et cetera. And so you have done such a beautiful, like you, you're, you built a bridge for that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was licensed as a minister in 2001. Again, another thing I didn't see coming that, you know, that wasn't my, uh, my particular walk. I learned being a minister in the church, man, the the higher up you go, right. The more you get to see behind the walls. I'm like, Mm -hmm. we really need help. (laughs) <laughs> you advance. Uh, but not only that, I mean, even Jesus said, hey, I didn't come for the well. I came for the unhealthy. And the mm-hmm. church just breeds unhealthiness. I mean, that's why mm-hmm. we go, right? We go seeking God and something greater than ourselves so that we can be well and okay. But that's not quite understood in the church. There are also people who think, oh, I got to get myself together before I go to church. I'm like, no, that's the place where you right. go to get yourself together. Right. Um, but in the black church, absolutely. You are sat down. If you are not well, we're sat down in our profession if we're not well. Right. Yeah, so sure. I totally get and understand that. Also in the churches, we hear people tell testimonies of how they overcame. And I was the person in the pulpit, like, I mean, I'm in the audience saying, no, tell me, tell me when you're struggling. Let me see right. when you're struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, don't tell me after the fact. I want to know what it looks like so I can recognize it in myself mm-hmm. so that I can get what I need. But mm-hmm. I remember uh, all of my friends, most of my friends are ministers, and we'd say, girl, we're crying on the way to church and get to church and wave and talk about how blessed and highly favored we are. And what a contradiction. I just got through sure. crying in my car. Right. It was it was sick in the way in which you know we did it. But I remember becoming whole um, and comfortable with preaching how unwell or unhealthy I was. I learned to pull out the scripture where folks weren't well and making it okay to say, um, it's okay to, to, to not be okay. And it's okay Mm -hmm. to go and get help. Um, so it was beautiful to be able to bridge the gap between science and religion or what I knew as a therapist and what I knew as a minister. And at one point they just became one in one. I wouldn't teach, um, Mm -hmm. someone something different as a minister, than I would if I was a therapist. And I love that those roles verge for me. And uh, in the church, I got to do a lot of mental wellness work. Absolutely. Um, so I'm hoping I'm answering your question. Oh, you did beautifully. Yeah. And, and talk a little bit, if you can, about the Black Mental Health Symposium. And because the first one happened, and then there was a, there was a gap, because even the Black community wasn't initially ready. Yes. And, yes. But God still had you preparing for such a time as this. Can you talk yes. some about that? Yeah. When I uh, opened that private practice, uh, you know, by faith and by myself and, and, you know, with that one friend of mine, which was everything. So I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing that. Mm -hmm. I had the idea for the Black Mental Health Symposium in 2007 and I um, 
called a friend at Friendship uh, Missionary Baptist Church and said, hey, do you, can we use space uh, at the church for me to put this on? And they were so gracious and hosted us and 35 people showed up. And I was grateful for the 35. Oh, I, you yeah. know, yes, I was like, right. shoot, that's that's awesome. Um, but because it was 35 and it took more work than it did for me to get the, I don't know, my output wasn't worth the income. Do you understand right. what I'm saying? I, and not I, I income did. in terms of money. But yes, it just wasn't a good trade-off. And I thought, I'm just, it's okay. But in 2016, when this, you know, uh, I had the idea again. So I prepared for 35 this time, <laughs> you know, still did it excellently, but I made right. sure that the income and the outcome were going to be a great match. Mm-hmm. Um, 140 something people showed up Ooh. to that first one. And wow, I thought, that's amazing. Yeah, so from 2007, so nine years later, we're ready for this thing. We're ready mm. for cultural competence. We're ready, to, mm. you know, we realize that all the counseling theorists are white. Elbert, Alice, yes. Rogers, Pearls, you know, uh, Whitaker. That. Yes, we even, realize even that Even the females, that, you know, Mary Ainsworth, people who are instrumental, yes. Yes. are still all based in the, a lot the of the... Theater, the Linehan, mm-hmm. yes. Yep. Even, the, even the women... Um, are white. And so I'm just thinking, how do you hand black and brown people something that hinge on Eurocentric norms and values and expect them to get better? Like, how do you do that? Um, You know, how do we give Mm -hmm. them Adler, whom I loved, um, and address inferiority complex without looking at oppression and racism and white privilege? Just how do you do that? Right. Great question. Uh, or, or attachment theory. How do we teach right. attachment theory and not look at the forced detachment through slavery in, in human traffic, right. human trafficking? So it became, uh, you know, my passion to incorporate multiculturalism in, in every aspect of our work. And so yeah. the symposium now is five years strong. Yeah, that's amazing. With post, post-traumatic slave syndrome, generational trauma, how how are you seeing that? Because it's been talked about more now, you know, yes. and how are you seeing that being played out or you're teaching it or how it's being played out in private practices? Anything about along the lines you're seeing? Yeah, I'm so very encouraged that it's become a term. Like we didn't know what to call it. We just would say things that are passed down in families. And surely we can see this, you know, right. alcoholism, teenage pregnancy, you know, those intangible things that are passed down. Um, living on welfare is generational. Mm-hmm. Uh, living in section eight is generational. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's these things that you're taught. This is how you do where you live, right. where you apply for benefits. And so mm-hmm. that's what you're taught. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. No slight mm-hmm. at all. Um, but I am the first in my family to not lose my children to DSS. Say that again. Tell the the audience that again. Yes. The first in my family to not lose my children to to DSS or foster care or to the jail system. Or Mm. so it, and, and we're, wait, I'm the first to graduate high school, high school, high school, first to go to uh, college. My son's the first black, I mean, the first male in the family to uh, graduate high school and then go to college. And so I knew we had all these generational things uh, stacked against us. And so there are ways in which we overcome those things that are, that are, Mm -hmm. that are passed down. Post-slavery syndrome is this thing that we've learned um, that our ancestors learned in slavery to protect themselves um, um, and to have their needs met. And those things were passed down. Like Mm -hmm. you always look presentable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You don't make eye contact. You don't mm-hmm. buck authority. You take what's hand, you take what's given to you, and you be mm-hmm. appreciative and grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Those are things they had to learn, and so to protect us, they passed it down to us, um, which is great and fine. But those things have also now, um, you know, caused us some issues, right? right. Um, so yes, yeah, I was we're just now realizing that. You know, fawning is a is a trauma response, and that means you do things to try to place people around you so that you can feel safe. Yeah. And so, black people, particularly black women, are telling me they wear their hair a certain way. Oh God, absolutely. At work, particularly in the corporate world, because they're trying to keep their job and stay safe. They mm-hmm. don't talk the same way they would around their family. Oh yeah. Right, oh. because they're trying yeah. to sound a certain way, just so they can feel safe and keep their job. Correct. And and not and to feel safe, but there's a reason you gotta feel safe because you don't want to be blackballed 
targeted, discriminated against. Mm -hmm. So yes, you look the part and you speak the freaking part and you come in on time. You know, you come against all those stereotype threats, um, you know, that, that are there. It's taxing, it's exhausting. um, And it's sickening, to be honest, the work that we have to do that our counterparts have no idea that that work is being done or uh, that they don't even have to do, um, you know, that kind of work. Yeah. Understanding of even, of even names, like it's, Finally, being acknowledged, it's been going on for a really long time through research has been proven. People are starting to acknowledge it, that if certain names are on a resume, that they are passed over, even if they have the exact same resume as someone with a name like Kim, oh, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. And that people and, you know, in, in understanding how to pronounce someone's name, how important that is, and to not slight someone. Yeah. Because that is yeah. complete discrimination. Yeah, I'll say two things about that. One, that same study, uh, a similar study was done in our profession uh, where voicemails were left for therapists um, from um, minority people uh, with minority names. And so uh, the study found that um, clients who sounded black or minority or had black or minority names, therapists didn't call them back. So, yes, we know the job application thing, but it also is in the counseling and and the mental health field that we also discriminate uh, for the same reasons. And then also about the name thing. I'm like, honey, one of the first ways in which you can honor somebody is to get their name right. Right. Um, And it's just such power and privilege and oppressive to shorten somebody's name. But I hear it all the time. People have asked me, um, LaTanya, well, can I just call you LT? No, my name is Latanya? That's right. what you can call me, right. or um, minority people, just for your own convenience, uh, mm-hmm. will shorten their names or you know rename or nickname mm-hmm. themselves for your convenience. And I just think, man, how disempowering is that? Right, absolutely. It just sucks. Yeah, thank you absolutely. for saying both of that, particularly the first part when it comes to people not responding based on name or how the voice sounds. And yes. I did not know that. I appreciate that. And, and I would never know that because I'm such the opposite. I get excited. Yes. Right. And uh, because I know how much harder it is for them to walk in the room. Yeah. And you know, particularly for, and I, it's hard for anyone to, and I honor that. Shame keeps us out of therapy. Shame is the reason why we need to be in therapy. And I get the tension between that. But when I have an Hispanic male, a black male, a black woman come in and choose me to be their therapist, like that's an honor. It's always honor. It's a, it's a double honor for me when they do that because I know, one, they don't know my background and that I have some similarities to them. They don't know that. Yes. And they still chose me. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I think it is a, a privilege and an honor to work with people who are culturally different than ourselves. Right. I mean, the more, uh, the more interactions we have with people who are not like ourselves, then the better we are, the more culturally competent we are, the more cognitive flexible we are, the more tolerant we are, the more open and loving we are. Um, But to always be with people who are like us. um, Yeah. Which goes back to doing the internal work. If we've done the internal work, we're open to self. That means we're open to others. Yes. Yep. Back to post-slavery syndrome. I gave you um, an example the last time that I want to repeat here um, because I just said, you know, hey, these are things that uh, our folks passed down so that they would be safe and, you know, could protect their positions and so that they could care for us. um, And those things have caused us harm. And let me just say, I meant what I mean by that is one of the things that um, slaves would do is that they, when uh, people would compliment their children um, or, or when white people would compliment their children, the black, the slaves would always say, oh, no, you know, you know, you don't, you don't want, you know, this child, uh, this child and point out the deficits of the child. That's something we still do today. If someone compliments our child, we're like, honey, you don't know how much trouble this child gives me. This child. We automatically go to the deficits. But the reason in which the, the reason why the slaves did that was um, if the child was good, strong, muscular, whatever, the slaves would want that child to work for them and to work Mm. in the fields. Mm. And so, uh, again, it was just something that's passed down. And so now I'm like, no, that hurts our children. Um, So as folks today, we need to praise our children as much as we possibly can in front of as many people as we possibly can uh, so that they're not, you know, interpreting that lack of praise as something's wrong with them. Right. Thank you for bringing that back up because I wanted to ask you if this is even possible to answer. So when we think generational trauma and we 
or reading articles and seeing that children, grandchildren of victims of the Holocaust, um, unbelievable, horrible, we can't even imagine, Mm -hmm. are showing, are born with symptomatic of PTSD, which is for generational trauma. We believe that quickly. We don't argue that. But when we hear that it's with with slaves, it's with still within the black community, there's a lot of yeah buts. Yeah. Any idea, any theory formation you have around that of why we're so quick to apologize to the Jewish community and so quick to def- defend ourselves with the yeah. black community? Man, I you know, really great question. I really think it's the perception of black people that mm. black people are strong or black people are animalistic or black people deserve to be on drugs. When heroin was in the black community, the country didn't respond. True. You know, the country locked True. up. Now yeah. white people are hooked on heroin. We got Narcan kits. Right. <laughs> you know, we right. got treatment. We That's got, point. We, we're raising funds. Yeah. Doctors are going to jail now for, for prescribing opiates now. prescribing. Yeah. But the perception that black people deserve to be on drugs, that's what they do. They're hooked on drugs. They do crimes. They don't deserve Mm -hmm. help, assistance, support. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the Jewish community, you know, we can forgive. Or you look at the Asian community. They came over here with nothing and they uh, bring in $700 billion a year and they employ $3.5 million, uh, 3.5 million people in this country. And so they're the model minority. And why can't you black people be just like, you know, so-and-so. And so so it's the perception of black people wherein uh, the way in which we're perceived incompetent. Yeah. Yeah. Great answer. And how, how do you, I know you've been through so much, but how do you walk around knowing that people are carrying that, whether they were unconsciously or consciously carrying that when they interact with you, right? Um, and, the, and when they find out you have a PhD, you get treated differently. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. People are so surprised when I, I'm a professor. Um, yes, that garners lots of surprise. Yes, um, how do I know? And, and Kim, I'll tell you, and you, I think you've heard me say this before, like I'm four years black is how I describe myself. Mm. Have you, did I say that before? Yeah, I, I love yeah. that. Please explain I'm, that to I'm us. I'm four years that. black. So when you say, man, how do you, how do you deal knowing people believe that you're, you know, inc- you're incompetent and, you know, you're less than and you're this. Well, so for so many years, I wasn't aware of it because I was trying to be white. Right. So I knew what you were thinking, but I just thought, let me dress like you, talk like you, right. let me do what you do, let me live where you live, let me try to get the things you get so that I could be accepted by your community, not knowing that the more white I was believing I was becoming, the less black I was. Right. So sure. I wasn't attached to it from the black experience. Now that I'm four years black, meaning I know that I'm you know fully black, I'm no longer trying to be white, I'm comfortable in my particular skin. Um, now I just know that, hey, as a black woman in all of my intersections, Christian, woman, black, this, that, and the third, it's an asset and it's no longer a liability to me. It no longer feels like this thing I have to hide or mm-hmm. um, deny. Um, and that's more freeing to me than it was 20 years of my career. I'm trying to be white. Right. Um, so, yeah, um, I don't know. And I, maybe it's the older I get. They say by the time you get to 50, I've got a few more years for that. But the time you get to 50, like you just care less about what people right, think or sure, say. Sure. And I'm certainly at that particular point. It's like, I know who I am. I know to whom I belong. I know mm-hmm. where my gifts and my blessings come from. Anything else is just, that's your problem. Right. And that's beautiful. It, it also doesn't change the fact that there's some blatant racism against you. Oh, my goodness. Would you like to share yeah. an example of that? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the biggest, I've always endured, Black people are not exempt from racism. Even in North Carolina, I remember working at Hardee's and Boone, where there are not many Black people, and I'm serving a customer, and um, he's has, uh, I have to give him change, and he's moving his hand. And I finally realized, oh, he doesn't want me to touch him. So I put his change on the counter for him to get it. Um, That's what racism is in North Carolina. I can deal with that kind of racism. I've been here in Florida for two years and I've never been, I have not been prepared for overt racism Mm. where in June, um, uh, a white man followed me to my home. I pull up in my garage and he's, 
pulled in my driveway in a pickup truck behind me like he belongs there. So I'm thinking, oh, my husband must have called a repair person and forgot to tell right. me. Um, but I get out of my car. I see the night Templar sign on the front of the truck. And I'm like, all right, well, here we go. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I go to him to see how I can help him. And he says, um, I followed you here because you have a university sticker on your car. And I'm like, yes, OK. Uh, how can I help you? And he says, well, I used to work there. Do you work there? And I said, yes, I work there. He said, well, do you live here? Yes, I live here. And he says, uh, well, I live in this community too. And so Kim, he's just talking. The only thing I pick up that he's talking about is that he has 12 years experience. But honestly, I don't hear anything else this man saying. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to figure out, is this okay? And what is happening? And should I run? Do I scream or stop overreacting? LaTanya, But I'm well aware that not to make sudden movements, like Mm. he's violating my space and I'm trying to protect him, you know, by not making any sudden movements because it's Florida and I'm sure he's armed. Anyway, he finally leaves. And um, because he's told me that he worked uh, at the university, I called campus security and, and gave his name because I had sense enough to ask his name. I called campus security and I said, hey, is he odd or mentally ill? Or do I need to be concerned? And they said, well, that is odd that he showed up at your, your place, but you really need to be concerned. You need to call the police. You need to file a police report. And then you need to come here and file a report here so that we can keep you safe on campus. I did those things. And when I went to campus, they gave me so much information about this man, mm-hmm. that he's the grand poobah of his organization, um, that he does not like Black people. He believes Black people has taken over. He's filed false reports against uh, Black students and Black faculty mm-hmm. on campus. Mind you, there are only three Black faculty members on campus. I've never been a target of his that I know of, but campus security did tell me that he knew who I was. So I didn't know who he was and I'm talking to him, but he knew who I was. Um, So I have not heard from him since, but I did get a a message from campus security. I think it's been two two weeks now um, that he came on campus and had to be escorted off campus. And so uh, they told me I needed to be on high alert. Right. And so, and again, to have all the history of trauma that you do, Sexual abuse, foster care, kidnapped, to be the woman that you are, now feeling safe, just coming home from being a professor. And this man believes that black people should not be in this neighborhood or on his campus. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I remember feeling in that moment, I remember saying to my husband, I don't know why this brought my childhood back to me like a full grown woman. But it was the powerlessness and the helplessness and the... You know, like uh, in childhood, and we just talked about this a few minutes ago, you learn how to appease the uh, the, the perpetrator. Yeah, absolutely. And so here I am being nice. How can I help you, sir? And, right. and being very, very well uh, aware of my movement so I don't tip right. them off. I'm like, right. that's totally my childhood, right? Right, absolutely. Um, yes. Well, and, and even in that, like you have a physiological reaction, like you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what trauma feels like, and and yeah. then we go into the strategies we've always done to try to get through it. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And so I felt that, but I'm saying, Latanya, like, don't overreact. This is not what that is. You know what I'm saying? This is not yeah. trauma. Right. This is you're not in danger. Like he's right. not threatening. He wasn't verbally threatening, but the fact that he's in my yard, he's right. not leaving. I have right. no idea why he's here. Was mm-hmm. uh, was threat enough? I will also say, Kim, that I thought. You know, I'm years away from, you know, my biological mom, the mm-hmm. trauma, the abuse, being homeless. And so here I am thinking I've got the highest degree in the land. Right. I'm working at a right. university. I live in this particular community um, that where I wanted to be. And you would think this was grounds for me to let my hair down. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking I didn't mm-hmm. made it. But right. I'm now in hindsight since his visit, I'm like, girl, those are all the reasons why your guard should be up. You should mm. be just as protective of yourself now as you right. were when you were a child. Yeah. And and just having to figure out how to reconcile that and, and just the truth, because if you had gone to his house on his property. Oh, my goodness. It, there would not have been that calmness. There would not be the same no. ending. It wouldn't have been no. a phone call of saying, hey, is she mentally ill? Is she OK? Like you called out of concern for him. Yes. Right. That, that's not how you would have been treated. Yes. 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 Again, I called out a concern for him. Isn't that crazy? Right. And you're allowed Um, to be concerned for yourself. Yes. 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 But even when I called the police, so I just moved into this community. I hadn't even been here a month by the time that he showed up and, and, you know, at my house. And um, when, when the campus security told me to call the police, Kim, I was thinking, wait a minute, I'm the only black person on the street. Right. I've got to call the police. What does that look like? The neighbors are going to do wow. 
The yeah. only thing you have to think about, right? Yes. Sure. You let yeah. the black people in and the neighborhood is going down. I had right. to reconcile all sure. that crap. Yeah. Um, but even when the police came, I asked for a trespassing order and they said I didn't have enough um, evidence mm. or the, the situation didn't mm. warrant trespassing. I asked for a restraining order and they said, well, since he and I don't have a history, I couldn't get a restraining order. So, Ken, there was really nothing they could do. Wow. And I said, if I was a white woman, and a black man showed up in a truck and hemmed me in, um, in my now. garage. Come on. Yes. She would have gotten everything she needed to be protected, including yes. a police sitting outside of her house. Yes. And every black man would have been arrested until they found the, until they found the right one. one. I yeah. know. And so the yeah. white therapists and psychiatrists, et cetera, they're listening to this or just anybody. <laughs> but just to just to remember that when you have someone walking in or you have a friend going through this, there's another side to this. It doesn't mean that you're guilty of it. it doesn't mean that you caused it, but just to be able to know the questions asked, how to interact with somebody, that it is a different experience. It's, yeah. It yeah. is. And we got to honor that. We, I don't know how to change it, but at least I can honor it for you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. Anything else along those lines, you would, if we have, you know, white people or people who aren't as culturally aware that are listening that, you would say who are therapists or again, even as friends about how to interact with this when it's different. Anything um, you want to say, say to white therapists, how to interact with, say that again, just for anything, any message you have for white therapists. Cause I know that's part of what you do is, is how to yeah. advocate, how to, how to be there for somebody that's a patient or a client. Yeah. 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 Man, I don't consider, you know, like I said, I don't really consider myself a messenger, you know, and I just appreciate the fact that people want to learn that they listen mm-hmm. to podcasts like this to get a different um, kind of experience. And like you said, Kim, when, when someone culturally different shows up, like that's a blessing and an honor um, and to look at it in that particular way, this isn't just a client as usual because people already know um, there's a research study that says, Hey, when minority people show up to white therapists, they already know that the, the therapist is going to be uh, less respectful, less congruent, and less empathic. So mm-hmm. they um, are less empathetic. They already know that coming in. So the reason that they chose, there's a reason that they chose you and a reason they keep coming back. Like honor that. Right. Um, um, those things that are visible. Let's talk about those things that are visible so that we can get to the things that are invisible. But if you won't honor me by, you know, learning my name or talking about these cultural differences that exist between us, talking about this social political climate and how it impacts me as a person of color. If I can't do that anywhere else, I pray I could do it on your couch. Amen. Like, uh, yeah, that therapist's office should be the place where I can come to pieces, uh, come to terms uh, with these pieces and fit them together. Right. Absolutely. And I assume you're still doing the each year doing the black mental health symposium. And yeah. so if there are people listening who have curiosity, that would be such a beautiful yeah. place to go. Yes, absolutely. And it's for every therapist. I know that the communication and stuff is, is, uh, is, you know, uh, of black people, you know, black people. I mean, because generally where in this profession can you find literature with black people on it? So, but anyway, that's intentional, but uh, it's for everyone. It's for anyone who works with black clients uh, and black people working with black clients, just because you're black don't mean you're right. qualified to work with black clients because there's right. literature on that uh, culturally matched dynamic uh, as well. So you are so very welcome to come to the Black Mental Health Symposium. It really is an amazing experience. And I'm not mm. saying that because I'm the founder, but that's what the evaluations and the results um, show. Um, and I just wrapped up a study, a research study on the Black Mental Health Symposium to find the uh, effectiveness of it. So um, right now we just finished um, analyzing the data. So I'm very well pleased with uh, putting some numbers and research behind it and not just you know, doing some conference, but making it scientific. Oh, that is fantastic. That is great. Okay. So we're going to do, we're going to do a little hot seat with you. Are you ready? Yes. Some hot seat. So I'm going to ask you some questions and just whatever comes to mind first okay. is what you just spit out. All right. All right. You're in the hot seat. Okay. First word that comes to mind when you hear vulnerability. First word that comes to mind when I think of vulnerability is open. Open? Okay, great. Favorite Bible verse? Oh, my goodness. Isaiah. Oh, there's so many, but Isaiah 53. Um, For I, the Lord, am your husband. Mm, that's good. That's a good marriage. Correct. Yeah, that's great. Okay. What is on your nightstand? 
what is on my nightstand? Books and an air purifier. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. All right. What surprises people the most about you? What surprises people the most about me? Superficially, um, the fact that I used to be a comedian, a stand-up comedian. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that about you. That's great. Yeah, 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 professionally. And so when people ask me that question, that's the first thing I say. I'm like, oh, yeah, I used to be a stand-up comedian, which was amazing. Right. Um, with have, you, that, have you found a correlation between trauma and um, oh, honey, comedy? Yes. Yeah, there's something yeah. there. Yeah. In fact, um, comedians, they don't scare me, but I, uh, I am always mindful of them because there are lots of suicide among the comedian, um, among comedians, right? Robin right. Williams, Bruce Farley. I mean, you can name them, right. but oftentimes they come from this traumatic childhood and we laugh to keep from crying. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I got out of comedian because people expected me to be funny all the time. Right. And um, I almost went to what's called Deaf Comedy Jam. It was this. Oh, yeah. Famous. Oh, yeah. Yes, I got to perform with Bruce, Bruce and Chocolate and some of the. And so when it was my time to to tape, I thought I'm not that good and I'm not Uh going to go. And uh, that was the end of my comedy career. I should have kept going. Girl, I might be famous. That's right. That's (laughs) just forget the book. Right. Yes, yes, You pick like the hardest professions to to excel. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, being a novel comedian therapist, one of the few black professors at Jacksonville University, you just, you just keep on pushing it. Yeah. It's great. I, I love you, it. That traumatic childhood helps though. You've got a mm-hmm. whole audience you've got to hold in your hand, which is, I don't, I don't even know how to describe that. And you've yeah. got to make them all laugh. But as an abused child is exactly what you do. You've got this situation, you walk in, it's like walking into home every day. You never know what to expect, but you've got to right play according to what you find when you go in. And that's how I approach stand-up comedy. I had an audience. I had them in the palm of my hand and I had to, Mm. I just had to hold them in the palm, make them do what I needed them to do. So if mom was sick, I knew what to do to get her to be Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. If she was having a good day, I knew what I needed to, you know, it's just really interesting. So they're one of the things. Yeah, again, it's part of the resiliency and, and making something good. I love that. Okay, it's great. What surprises you the most about you? Oh, my God. I am amazed at myself for who I've become and where I am. I knew at 12 I'd be something, but I didn't know it would be this great. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's not people's greatness. I don't know when you think like Oprah, you know, it's so I'm not great in that but I never thought I'd be this great. Um, I just never thought that. Yeah, such a miracle. It really is beautiful. Yes. All right. Favorite binge-worthy TV show? Oh, my God. This is us, and it comes on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. I love This Is Us. It's therapy on TV. Yeah, it is. It is. People <laughs> can relate. That's great. Okay. What does your playlist reveal about you? My playlist. What does it reveal about you? Oh, because I'm all over the place. <laughs> I got gospel, trap, rap. I mean, uh, trap music. Uh, yes, R and B. Oh yeah. my God, Bunny, Bonnie Raitt. Uh, anything from the '80s. I was just listening to Wham this morning. So, and I'm all over the place. The Wham, that's great. I love it. Okay, all right. Last question for you: When you hear "Flip Your Lid," from now on, what will come to mind? When I hear "Flip." your lid from now on what will come to map mind uh unexpected unexpected that's good <laughs> yes yeah. yeah uh like um and what i mean like an unexpected gift because mm. i expected that this was going to be like the last time i was not expected to remember right yeah yeah or to recall i was yeah. not expecting that and thank you because it adds to this Latanya, if you didn't think you were blessed before, girl, mm. <laughs> you are now mindful of just how much God has walked with you mm-hmm. and there's, carried you. There's a consciousness that's there. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. If our listeners wanted to in any way get in touch with you, follow you on Instagram somewhere, get a hold of your textbook, I can't imagine, but some people in our audience would, would went to NeuroNerd, mm-hmm. might want to read your book. <laughs> How would they, how would they touch base with you? 
Yes, let's see. I am on Facebook. So you can find me on Facebook, Latanya Summers. No uh, pseudonym or anything on Facebook. I don't know how to work Instagram, but I do have an Instagram for uh, Black MH Symposium. You know, because okay. you got you to recruit programs. So you can right. find me there. Um, I am on Twitter. I never look at Twitter, but I got followers. Um, that's Black MH Symposium there as well. Or you can email me at lsummer at ju.edu. And that's L S U M. M-E-R at J-U dot E-U. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, well, get in touch with her. Just know her email address doesn't have the S on her last name. Yes, thank you. I don't you. know why. But so if you're looking <laughs> for her on Facebook, it is Latanya Summers, but her email address is just Summer. Yes. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Latanya. It's you. such an honor to be your friend. Every time you and I chit chat, I always learn something so valuable. Yeah. So it's just great connecting to you. So to all of you that were listening, we really hope you heard something today that flipped your lid and allowed you to reconnect to be who you really are meant to be. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, Treat yourself well today.